Hello and welcome to this episode of Thought Experiments, our weekly program where um, we discuss issues, you know, pertinent to the African intelligentsia. Uh, today's discourse is a question, um, one that has often been engaged variously across all media platforms and one that can be very triggering for a lot of people, but um, is necessary for us to engage if indeed um, you know, Africa is to make substantial progress. Um, today's discourse is a question, does religion stifle progress? And I will be trying to provide um, a thorough um, explanation of my point of view on this concept and hopefully um, you know, helping move the conversation forward. So, uh, religion, many of us would know, is uh, the belief in some theistic uh, being, uh, some supernatural being, um, and then the set of morals, laws, and um, practices that are related to that belief system. So, um, there are non-theistic religions, uh, like Buddhism, for example, that do not have a central deity, but they do share with the theistic religions the practices um, uh, and uh, ceremonies, you know, that characterize uh, theistic religious faith. So, you know, you have people um, hold certain places in reverence as maybe holy sites. You have them practice uh, certain activities, meditation, for example, in Buddhism in order to um, gain, you know, a more enlightened state. Um, and ultimately, even though there is no central um, deity in religions like Buddhism, they still share a lot of similarities to, um, you know, theistic religions like the Abrahamic ones. So this discussion would be all-encompassing, um, involving all, you know, notions of religions as convention conventionally defined. So... Um, to begin with, if we are looking at um, religions, right, you can define it functionally by um, answering the question of what it does, like what do religions do, um, or what's the goal ultimately of you know many of these religions. Um, religions often concern themselves with you know three facets, I would say, of an individual's life. Religions concern themselves first of all with what happens when you know your life ceases um, to exist? So, in essence, what happens after death? Some religions would say, um, you know, post death comes reincarnation. Others would say um, it comes liberation or moksha. Some would say there is a heaven, and some, like um, you know, Orthodox Judaism, would say, well, <laughs> once you die, that's the end of it, right? Um, so religions often try to guide us towards good outcomes at the end um, and that end being the end of life which for some religions is simply the transition to another um, state of being right so that's the first area religions concern themselves about like what happens at the end uh, but religions also concern themselves about you know what happens while we are alive right um, so what activities should you engage in what activities, if you engaged in, would be moral, right, and pleasing to the deity, or um, nudging you towards, you know, um, a, a better end. So, you know, maybe liberation, right? In the case of 
um, you know, non-theistic religions, right? So the second um, thing religions essentially concern themselves about is, you know, how we live our individual lives and, you know, what sort of activities we can um, engage in in that sense. Then the third and perhaps final thing religions concern themselves about is like how we organize society or interact with our society, right? So religions often in this um, area are concerned with, you know, what sort of um, um, relations we can have, how many people you can get married to, um, you know, how many children you can have. Um, some religions are concerned about that, uh, you know, and and more right you know what sort of laws should you live under right should you you know uh make loans at the profits should you uh be able to invest in certain companies um that perhaps violate the principles of your religion so in that sense it's it regulates our interactions with our neighbors and with the broader um community the broader society Right. So obviously, from this functional definition of religion, it is very clear that religion essentially pervades every facet of our lives. Right. Um, from birth till death and beyond, um, religion oftentimes has one thing or the other to say about how exactly we live our life. Now, this becomes, you know, very, very important when we talk about progress and the broader society because if religion you know afflicts or is involved in um, affects rather every facet of an individual's life then that individual as a member or as a cell in that broader organism that is society would you know inevitably using their influences by religion um, affect the progress or otherwise of that um, society uh, but before delving into that question in detail, like there's some distinction I would like us to make because oftentimes um, it is very easy to find a conflation between these two things. So, and these things are uh, one, like culture and religion, right? So oftentimes, um, you know, people think of these things interchangeably. When people talk about African culture, for example, or pre-colonial African culture, they are often integrating, um, you know, the influences of religion and environment and everything as one and are speaking about it in that, um, you know, amalgamated mass. Now, of course, culture is an amalgamation of all those things, you know, your environmental influences, religion, the laws of that society, etc. Right. But then religion is itself distinct from the culture of a place. So um, America, for example, might be deemed a capitalist country, a very individualist country, right? Because the individual is um, privileged in that society. But then um, that individualism does not proceed from the religion of Americans. Like, so the majority of Americans are Christian, right? So you can't say individualism is, um, you know, the culture of America because religion, which is... Um, uh, in this case, primarily Christianity told people to be individualistic, right? So, in essence, um, the religion is a 
contributive factor to the culture but the religion does not explain in entirety the culture of the place right it does not explain in entirety the behaviors of people in a place as well so oftentimes you'd find like i mentioned earlier um you know the conflation of these two things and they are used interchangeably so people would say oh african religion um you know pre-colonialism was this and then they would go ahead to mention you know things that were essentially cultural artifacts right um you know there were laws about um ostracizing people maybe killing certain individuals for some crimes but many many at times those laws did not proceed from the religion of the place so it's not like it was always the case that you know the god said oh you have to do a b and c thing right um many at times the cultures and the laws of a place um in the case of you know uh, pre-colonial african states are misconstrued as being entirely motivated by the religion but we'll get to that in a bit so the next thing i'd like us to look at is religion as a system of power as mentioned earlier obviously um you know religion is clearly powerful right if it controls an individual's um you know almost like virtually every action right um especially if that person is a believer then you can clearly see how much power religion has over an individual right so um it's important for us therefore if we understand that religion um, essentially is a system of power it's important for us to then see how that um, system that you know holds power over individual can be used so in essence religion is a tool right oftentimes and as much as um, in an individual's life religion is very helpful um, you know in shaping their morals and actions and all that at a broader societal level religion is a tool right and because it is a tool, um, it is very important, therefore, that, you know, we judge it as such. Um, and as a result, do not, you know, just place all the blame on it in, in terms of like certain actions that, you know, come about. So let's, let's look at um, religion structurally. So structurally, when you consider the fact that um, a lot of the times... You know people who wish to exact power leverage the control of religion then you might begin to see why religion itself is not to blame for a lot of outcomes that perhaps uh seemingly occur in a society that is very religious so let's look at this historically um when colonialism occurred like you know when when western um parties landed upon various shores in south america in africa etc um they did not just conquer many of those places militarily they also imposed um you know their values imposed their belief systems you know upon the persons or the people in those areas right so perhaps this was not done as a part of a grand strategy many of the people who were missionaries and were trying to like spread their religion did it because they really believed that they were liberating people and they were freeing people but it, it provides us with a perfect like natural experiment for us to um you know get some insights on a, a phenomenon i want us to discuss today so there are several countries that were colonized 
but the religion of the colonialists was not really forced down the truths of you know the locals right and there are countries that were colonized and were thoroughly assimilated a lot of the times their local cultures were demonized oppressed and um, ultimately um, subjugated right with the the foreign cultures and religions becoming on the ascendancy right so you find if you look at it historically that countries that were occupied um and their religions were left intact whether they were occupied in the modern era or in you know pre-colonial times or classical colonial times you would find that the countries that were occupied without their religions being changed or, or oppressed um, were not so easy for the colonialists to hold on to um, Afghanistan and several countries in the Middle East are a very you know, veritable example of this. They have you know, exchanged hands you know, between uh, from the fall of the Ottoman Empire to uh, the hands of the British to um, you know, the hands of the, the Russians when they eventually invaded Afghanistan. And in all that time, even when you know places were occupied for decades or in some cases less than that, when there was no control of the religion of that place, you often found that you know those people were not easy to control. Those people were often uh, very you know adamant um, uh, in their refusal of. The, the oppressor's devices, right? They were still very independent. So the the reason I point to this is to show that, you know, even though it wasn't always done deliberately, many have come to the realization that controlling religion ultimately gives you control of the people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, of course, like, this is very obvious. But it wasn't always that obvious, right? Um, and that's why, you know, many a times the, the strategies of colonial powers and imperialists did not factor in cultural control. They merely relied upon, um, you know, material and military control of a people. So when we understand the importance of religion in subjugating a people, in making them more docile, making them more pliable, essentially, you know, we can then engage this question in, you know, the contemporary time. Because in the contemporary times, um, in Africa especially, the, the preponderant narrative is that African superstition, African religious beliefs is in some way mitigating against the, 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 the achievement of progress in, on the continent, right? And I'd like us to engage that hypothesis. So, of course, Africa, as many would know, is a more religious continent than um, many others, like than many other parts of the world, right? So Africa is also coincidentally a more underdeveloped continent than other parts of the world. It is therefore easy to look at this correlation and say, oh, this definitely means African superstitions are the reasons why, um, you know, there is no development or there isn't an equal amount of development as there is in the rest of the world but this is not true especially if you think back to like pre-colonial times right um the congo when the belgians arrived had a thriving um civilization as a matter of fact in the 17th and 18th century when you know belgian explorers were arriving in the congo and giving accounts of it, 
they described the, the, the kingdoms that were present there as being you know equal to in terms of their sophistication to many of those that were present in you know parts of western europe at the time they compared the capital cities to vienna they compared um, you know the amount of instruction and organization to those found in london etc right so the same thing is applicable with Benin, right? The the old Benin Empire. You can find, um, you know, scholarly articles written about the engineering feats, the amount of sophistication that um, pervaded that empire, and ultimately, what that shows is the amount of sophistication that was present, despite the you know assumed level of superstition being very high right so the presence of superstition has not really impeded um you know african ingenuity and progress uh guys let me take a break i need to handle so in essence um many have come to that realization that controlling religion um grants them you know disproportionate amount of control over the people right because of how much control religion itself has over the people so you often find as a result since the understanding of that power that religion everywhere is intertwined with the power structures of that society there's a reason why you almost never find religious leaders condemning um you know the leadership of even the most oppressive regimes right now if you do find that you would find oftentimes that that religious leader is associated with like you know some oppositionary group um that seeks different ends from the current power structures so dalai lama the dalai lama for example awesome as he is you know is perhaps the only religious leader you would find critiquing the chinese government but then that is because he is the de facto leader of the Tibetan, you know, resistance movement, you can call it that, right? The, the desire for Tibet to gain independence from mainland China, right? So there is always that correlation between, um, you know, uh, religion and, or the alignment rather between religion, um, its, its goals and that of the power structures, right? Because people have very um, long ago realized that if you do not control the religion of a people, you cannot keep them subjugated. You might be able to dominate them militarily, but whoever controls, um, you know, their desires for an afterlife or controls them in that more um, visceral way that religion, you know, has um, over people, that visceral control religion has over people, um, that individual ultimately will win. So this is why in many African societies, like, you know, even the most corrupt ones. You find people talking about prosperity. You find them talking about sexual immorality. You find, you know, religious leaders of all persuasions talking about everything except what is glaring to everybody in those societies to see, right? It is no coincidence that, you know, um, under the military regime that Nigeria had, for example, you had almost, you know, no religious leader rising to the fore as being a champion for um, the, the rights of the masses. People were disappearing. People were being killed. Like, there were bombs being sent in the mail to people and <laughs> their lives being ended as a result. People were being assassinated in their homes. 
and there was massive silence by the people who are supposed to be the arbiters right of morality the 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 people who are supposed to advocate for civility and you know mutual brotherhood and love and all of that they were quiet as a matter of fact you know in latin america with the rise of so many atrocities and dictatorships and all sorts right um a lot of uh, because latin america is preponderantly a catholic um, um region of the world um at the you know catholics bishops conference in the um 80s they they met and discussed you know the the perennial um you know issues that their people faced and you know created as an uh, offshoot of that conference um, a concept known as liberation theology so you know they decided that rather than taking this um impartial so to speak position um they would rather the campaign the problematic leadership call out the structural reasons for people's poverty and suffering because they saw the mission of the church in that part of the world as not just uh, being one to tend to the wounds of the people who have been exploited and brutalized, but as being um, involved in the improvement of their lives, right? In the campaigning problematic structures and seeking the liberation of the people. Do you know that as laudable and as nice sounding as that agenda was, it was called out by the Pope um, at the time, John Paul II, um, you know, when he led the church in the 90s, even created a deliberate strategy where they started sending more conservative prelates, like they started appointing more conservative bishops to Latin America to ensure that you do not have the Catholic Church involved in criticizing dictators. Even dictators like Pinochet, many others who were outrightly slaughtering members of not just the church, but members of their own community, you know, were not criticized by the church. Where was the church essentially when Hitler was on the rise? I mean, Germany was a very, um, you know, Christian and very religious country. But for the most part, the church was silent, right? Eventually, it was oppressed as well because, you know, the, the Nazis... Uh, wanted absolute control and they eventually got around to oppressing the church but it was very very silent when the nazis were oppressing the socialists when they were oppressing the trade unions when they were oppressing the jews and by the time you know uh, the church itself became oppressed by you know the nazi regime it was frankly speaking too late and a world war was at foot so th the point is you often find um you know, religion being co-opted by the power structures. And sometimes you find religious leaders trying not to upset the power structures so that they can, you know, maintain essentially their power rather than using that power, you know, for progressive um, um, purposes. But then you often do find in some cases, people who try to use religions uh, in, in progressive ways um, right now, in many parts of the Muslim world, you have a lot of women who are pushing for, um, you know, a, a new interpretations to the Quran that are more liberal, that are more um, uh, enfranchising of women, right? And, you know, that is an example of like people trying to use religions for progressive means. So everywhere you go, um, you find people recognizing the power of religion and using it as a tool right ultimately for their goals but unfortunately um for too long the the regressive conservative power structures have been in control and have um, ended up 
weaponizing religion for their own purposes. So let's answer this question frontally, right? Does religion stifle progress? The answer is simple, but at the same time very complex. Um, in societies that recognize that religion should have a non-overlapping magisteria, as um, Stephen Jay Gould um, used to say, right? In his case, Stephen Jay Gould said, you know, we need to separate religion from science. Like, that's where he applied the concept of non-overlapping magisteria. Religion should concern itself with matters of spirituality, while science should concern itself with matters of, you know, the material world and, you know, whether or not there's gravity and the likes, right? And ultimately, this is a, a principle that is echoed by, um, you know, the principle of the separation of states, right, from religion. Um, in societies that have that separation, religion does not impede progress in any way, right? Because if the religion is separated from, you know, the scientific pursuits, if people are free to research whatever they want without being, you know, uh, handcuffed essentially by what the religious bodies who have no knowledge of science would say, then you oftentimes have, you know, greater progress. When you have, you know, religion separated from the state, the religion tending to the heart, the matters of spirituality and matters of, you know, the divine, then you often do not find, you know, as much um, societal impedance to progress. But when you get religion actively participating in politics, take the United States, for example, where um, the religion, uh, the, the, the religious, you know, bodies, especially evangelicals, are members essentially of one political party. Like, in as much as, um, you know, there are religious people on all sides of the divide, everyone knows that evangelicals preponderantly support the Republican Party. So you do so because maybe you are trying to prevent more liberal um, policy prescriptions like gay rights and abortion, etc. But because the Republican Party also has a lot of other you know, problematic policies, problematic to me anyways as a liberal, um, policies like you know, excessive militarism, um, policies like um, cutting the budget and ultimately minimizing um, the amount of support that minorities and other you know, destitute persons in society can get, then as an evangelical, you are co-signing those other policies because even though you know, Jesus was very famously a friend of those who had little, <laughs> by you know, hitching yourself to a political party that is committed to fiscal conservatism, you are essentially signing up, you know, for the disenfranchisement of poor people, um, the neglect of those people. And that is contradictory. But, you know, that's what you get when religion associates itself with, like, the politics of the state or allows itself get captured by, you know, one agenda or the other. So it is possible for you to have, you know, absolute freedoms as a religion and be able to practice um, whatever you wish to practice, you know, within the ambit of the law anyways, and have a thriving state with science unimpeded, with the politics of the states not, you know, stuck in, like, um, uh, the conservative dark ages, right? Many examples of that abound, from the Nordic or Scandinavian countries in Europe to, 
you know, many other countries across the world, the likes of New Zealand, etc. People are very free to practice their religions, but religion does not have an outsized presence in the politics. So I think that balance can be achieved. And it is when that non-overlapping magisteria is recognized by all parties, when politicians cease trying to use religion as a weapon, right, to control their own populations, only then would you then um, have progress, right? Because when religion gets into politics, huh, then it really becomes a problem. So to summarize what I've been trying to say all the while, um, I think religion is a tool that can be used for or against progressive means. So as a result, it is value neutral, right? So religion is neither a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to the question of progress. I don't think it um, impedes progress or you know promotes progress by default, but I think its usage, right, can you know be progress enabling or progress impeding, right? Because at the end of the day, it is a tool. A hammer can be used for murder. It can also be used for building cathedrals. Similarly, religion can be used for you know giving legitimacy to the most brutal regimes and brutal systems like slavery and colonialism but at the same time you know religion can be used for agitating for liberation from dictators like pinochet in south america so um at the end of the day it's a tool it's up to you know the manipulator of that tool or the possessor of that tool to use it appropriately but then we must also recognize religion's power and its potential right for manipulation because a people cannot be blind to you know the, the force that religion possesses i gave several examples earlier of how you know entire countries could not be controlled even though there was overwhelming military might at play just because you know the religion and the culture of those people was left unimpeded right so if you manipulate the people's culture if you control their beliefs then it is much more easy for you to you know make them pliable make them controllable right this is a lesson that history teaches us also we must also recognize that because religion oftentimes is deeply associated with the power structures sometimes for us to destroy the non-progressive power structures we must also attack the religious establishment whether it means going against um, you know what the pope is directing you to do as a bishop in south america or whether it means going against what the mullahs are saying and trying to you know uh practice ijtihad and you know reinterpret the quran essentially you know in a more liberal light whatever that form of rebellion against the structures um you know amounts to it is important for us to recognize that sometimes when religion is in bed with the power structures we don't need to just attack those power structures we must call out the problematic religion and their um, you know practices as well okay so that brings us to the end of um, this section of our discourse um, now we'd like to take questions from our community on discord on the question um, does religion stifle progress so our first question from the community is from at Olua Timileng on Discord. And the question goes thus, apart from the conservative influence religion has had on Nigeria, do you think it has also contributed to our underdevelopment as a country? I think um, it has. Um, 
And I would mention a couple of um, examples of this. For one, um, you know, Nigerians are a very smart people. So I am often perplexed by how it is that we have the you know, system of governance that we do. How do we elect people who seemingly are the most stupid you know, of us, right? Or the least interested in our development amongst us, right? The average Nigerian, if you speak to them, can list you know, so many problems and perhaps even give you a couple of solutions to our problems, right? And this is without much research uh, by them, right? So it shows that, you know, being aware of the, the fact that we have problems in Nigeria is, is not um, an elite skill. So one reason why I think we have this problem is that oftentimes um, religion in Nigeria has pushed docility amongst us. Look at Northern Nigeria as an example. In Northern Nigeria, um, even before Nigeria as an entity came to being, there has always been you know, a huge amount of control by the religious establishment upon the masses in that part of um, the country. Northern Nigeria has produced leaders for more than 30 years of Nigeria's, um, you know, um, independence, right? More than 40, actually, um, if we are being exact, you know. So if you consider how much control over the wealth of Nigeria, Northern Nigeria has had, you should see much more progress in that part of the country. But every statistic shows us that Northern Nigeria has the poorest states in the country, the least educated you know, people in the country, and a lot of other issues. So ordinarily, you would expect that, oh, this would be the source of all the agitation. But no, it's the Southeast, it's the South-South, right, that has more of the agitations than the North. And my thesis for that is that, you know, because there is this system right the culture in the north and like we said earlier religion contributes to culture the culture of the north where the leadership um you know is deeply revered and deeply respected essentially creates an atmosphere where there's very little you know challenge of um leaders right in the, in, the, in the north so you find um similar things in the south as well so let's not make this um, a discourse around the problematic politics of the North. In the South, you find many people who are, you know, in the so-called intelligentsia, the middle class, right, refusing to participate in politics. And oftentimes it's because, oh, their pastors or their, their leaders told them that, well, politics, these are things of the world. I won't mention a particular church, but many of us know, right, that there are certain churches that advise their members not to even participate in you know matters of so-called the world, right? So when you have so-called intelligent people, uh, intellectuals, the middle class who have the capital to maybe organize and uh, make things a little bit better, right? When you have those individuals refusing to engage in the politics of the society, then perhaps you do not get as good um, and outcomes as you can. Now, in terms of underdevelopment, um, I think, you know, the, the, the cause really of our underdevelopment um, is a combination of poor policy by, you know, the leaders of the country, but also um, a little bit of superstition, right? But I think it's preponderantly poor policies. So you as an individual, 
um, bright as you might be, still require functioning systems in the state for you to contribute meaningfully to it, right? You need, you know, adequate schooling. You need adequate infrastructure, right? You need um, financing for, to get your ideas off the ground. When you consider all your needs, you know, you, you would inevitably realize that they are impeded. Your ability to get those needs are impeded by the policy environment. That's why I say the majority of the blame still goes to policy. So, if religion negatively affects, um, you know, the policies that are being made in the state or the leadership of the state, because people are either refusing to call out their problematic leaders or refusing completely to participate in the politics, if religion contributes to that, then at the end of the day, you can say religion, you know, indirectly is responsible for the underdevelopment because it contributes to the poor performing leadership that creates the poor performing policies that creates underdevelopment. So it's like a very indirect relationship, but it's it's still something you can point to. Superstition is also a part of it. Like a lot of issues that can be researched and uh, meaningfully, you know, developed are not looked into because there's a lot of superstition around it. Like African pharmacognosy, for example, is one area that is greatly, greatly underdeveloped. You know, a lot of people are worried about researching certain things or researching certain plants and um, the medicinal benefits because those things are used by you know so-called native doctors and they are they, they are seen to have um you know supernatural connotations to them so yes um i think supernatural beliefs or superstition you know impedes our ability to develop in some ways the second question we have from the communities from ATA. And the question is, um, what do you think about religious extremism or fanaticism in terms of development or underdevelopment of Nigeria? Well, personally, I think, you know, people can be as religious or as fanatic about their religion as they like, as long as, you know, they don't try to extend that to other people in society, right? So, I mean... I know a lot of people who really, really have fervent religious beliefs. It controls what they eat, you know, how they speak, how they dress, right? Whether they invest in certain companies or not. But those individuals have never really, you know, come to hit me over the head because I don't dress like them or speak like them, etc. Right? So I think, you know, where religious fanaticism, right, crosses the line and becomes dangerous to society and society's development is when religious fanatics decide that it is not just enough for them to be religious, they must make everybody else religious or it is their duty essentially to exterminate people who are not identically religious to them. Obviously, that becomes a threat to the security, becomes a threat to the development of you know our, our nation, right? And I think that needs to be diminished. So how do we achieve the diminishing of, you know, such uh, actions or such behaviors? You know, I can't say I have an immediate answer, right? But it would definitely involve co-opting the religious establishment. If you had a lot of pastors who are calling out, um, you know, the, the extremist practices of, you know, extremist Christians, and then you have the Sultan of Sokoto calling out and other, you know, Muslim scholars calling out extremist actions of, you know, extremist Muslims, then perhaps you might have 
um, you know, some change in behaviors because of the huge powers that those um, um, individuals possess, right? So we must actively decampaign um, fanaticism crossing over into extremism, right? Because when there's insecurity, you can't have developments. You can't build roads, essentially, when people are being slaughtered. Like, who's going to go and walk on the roads when you don't have infrastructure, development is impeded, etc., etc., etc. At Abim's on Discord asked um, that I made mention of the fact that religion has an effect on both the lives of the vast number of people that buy into the idea and also the society. Um, do you think religious organizations should get involved in politics and the orchestration of the state? Okay. Well, um, for example, he mentions uh, Tunde Bakari, um, a, a prominent pastor in Nigeria, wanting to run for president. Hmm. I think religious people have a right to participate in politics if they want to. So the fact that you're a pastor, for example, should not preclude you from participating in politics. But I think religious people should not and obviously this is not me proposing that they be banned from doing so they will still do so if they want but religious people should not leverage religion as um, a, a political tool so let's let's make that distinction right um because we live in a country with very low rates of you know irreligiousness if you would call it that or atheism um the vast majority of nigerians are religious so inevitably, Nigerian politics is still, you know, controlled essentially by very religious people. So that's not something that is going to change anytime soon. And that's not something I am advocating for, right? Um, people would always bring their value systems to their politics. But the problem arises where, you know, someone comes and says, oh, God has given me a mandate to rule, right? Uh, you know, God has directed me to liberate this country. Like, I, that's the distinction I'd like us to have in our politics. We should have people who are religious, by all means, participate, but we should not have religious organizations being used, right, as platforms for campaigning or leaders of those organizations, maybe pastors or whoever, right, leveraging their control over, um, you know, those huge swaths of people in order for them to um, build a political following for themselves it can only end in tears that is my honest belief because by default when you are in a multi-ethnic society and you are using religion as um, um, your your basis for campaigning you are creating you know a dangerous in-group out-group dynamics right those who believe in your you know religious mandate and your religion would defend you devotedly and those who don't you know might oppose you regardless of what your policies are they might oppose you just because they do not you know buy into your religion so it's it's a very dangerous dichotomy you are creating for yourself if you were arguing you know for why your candidacy is justified on the basis of the merits that is the policies you have you might find people across all religious persuasions buying into your ideas but you would limit yourself inevitably um, when your argument is essentially predicated on you know your religious belief so the catholics would have their candidates the shia muslims will have their candidates the anglicans will have their like yo it, it can only end in chaos right i don't think that is advisable in the slightest um at ubod on the platform similarly asked 
two questions actually. The first question is, um, well, over a while, okay, it's more like a contribution. Um, well, over a while, I have come to realize that inherent in religion is its ability to morph into political structures within itself. Even if there is a separation of politics, do you think this political structure in itself will still impede progress? Hmm. Okay, uh, if I understand your question correctly, then you are saying um, religions, even if they are separated from the state, are inevitably um, doomed to be political or um, you know build structures that uh, can be political. Well, I wouldn't say this is the case, right? Um, I, I think people would always try whenever you have a large following, people would always try to leverage it for you know accessing power. So whether you have a trade union, there are people who have leveraged trade unions for power. There are people who have leveraged, you know, um, their control over, you know, even educational systems for power. You will now you know, try to educate people in a way that um, is, is convenient for your ideology. So inevitably, there might always be people trying to use religion, no matter how much we try to separate it, right? trying to use their control of religion for accessing political power, right? But I don't think if we have well-thought-out systems, um, that is going to succeed, right? Like, we must we must think about, you know, ways to ensure that the state itself is lacking any sort of religion. So examples of this include, you know, eliminating or completely abolishing, you know, things like, the government sponsoring people for certain religious activities or the other like that is absolute rubbish the state should not have any business sending people for pilgrimages the state should similarly not have any business building churches and mosques this does not mean right that if you you know are a believer in um you know one religion or the other the state should not allow you time to go and pray of course it should right the state should you know maybe make fridays and sundays um, or, you know, the entire, you know, period between Friday and Sunday, because there are seven-day Adventists um, who, you know, take a break on Saturdays, like, give people their, their breaks um, as their religion dictates, right? Um, holidays should be declared for people's, uh, you know, religions, right? So, like, I am fine with all of those things, but that is the state simply recognizing you know, that individuals have a right to practice their beliefs. But when the states start actively participating in religion, you know, sponsoring religious conferences, paying scholars, like a very popular thing in Nigeria, right, especially when you have crisis, are governors paying people to pray, right? So you hear um, a governor has paid people to pray about insecurity, to pay about returning of Boko Haram, um, the, the Chibok girls. A governor has paid people to pray for the end of coronavirus. Like, we are replacing sound policy with superstition, and the state should never get into that business. That is a problem, right? So, um, to your second question, right? If you advocate a separation of religion from science, don't you think this gives credence to more false creeds within the religious structures that will hinder progress of the adherents? Uh Okay, um, so the thing is, I think science 
should not be trying to tell people oh that they shouldn't be religious right science should essentially mind this business right so for example um if you have faith that your pastor laying hands on you would cure coronavirus that is your personal problem right but the science should continue to advocate and make it very clear to the public that as far as science is concerned as far as the evidence is concerned you know no laying of hands has been proven to translate to any cures so you know it's it's difficult sometimes maintaining that separation between what is scientific and what is religious because you know um, religious leaders might make claims that impede upon you know the physical realm and claim you know they can do a and b thing right and scientists have a burden um, to protect innocence from being um, duped essentially right by charlatans who claim things they cannot do so in those cases of course it is difficult to maintain a separation but i think difficulty is not impossibility right there are many countries that have laws against false advertisements um, even if you are making those false advertisements as a religion um, you can still be you know prosecuted for it so you can't come on tv in nigeria um, these days as an example um, you can't just go on tv and advocate that oh if you come to my miracle school you'll be healed of all your illnesses or whatnot right you can claim that oh it's an atmosphere for miracles or we do miracles here right but we have tightened our advertisement regime to prevent you know certain unfounded claims from being made right so i think that's good and that can be achieved but i don't think science should actively concern itself with what is happening in religion like oh maybe people should be devoting um, um research time to debunking pastors or whatever I, I don't think you know that's a good use of time essentially right um so at hurricane asked um will a politician survive if they denounce religion altogether <laughs> uh well you know like i said if you are in a very religious community if you are making your politics around an issue of religion then you you, you stand a very serious risk you know if someone says for example in a multi-ethnic multi-religious society like ours that they are really really christian they really really um you know practice their faith and all that inevitably they will turn off some people who are not christian like that's going to happen similarly if someone says in this sort of very religious society that they are not religious at all then there are people who will definitely be turned off by such individuals so i think the smarter or more astute political thing to do if someone were really not religious um, would be for them to just focus on the politics if they don't want to lie that is right they don't want to pretend that they are religious they should just focus on their policies oh do you go to church every day well i believe everyone should have a right to go wherever they want to a church to a shrine to a mosque perhaps don't mention the shrine <laughs> bit because you would anger a lot of people but yeah to whatever religion they want to practice they are free but then you quickly pivot to you know your policies right these are the policies i believe in i believe that a lot of people would not you know be going to churches for miracles for malaria if we had functional primary health care centers 
I believe that people will not be praying that their family members have a safe journey if we have functional security systems, if we had good roads that were not essentially dead traps ridden with potholes. I believe, and then you mentioned your policies. So I think, um, you know, de-emphasizing religion if you are not a religious person and you want to be truthful that you're not a religious person is the right strategy. But you can always lie. Like <laughs> a lot of um, our politicians lie about virtually everything. Anyways, many of them, it is even rumored, are not really, you know, believers of whatever faith they proclaim. It is merely just convenient for them to pro proclaim that faith. So if you want to be as sleazy as the problematic politicians that we all complain about, then by all means you can lie, right? But you know, I don't think people in our generation should be uh, pursuing that path. Then the final question is from Ayodele Samuel. And the question is, um, when religion takes an active stance against practices that are antithetical to what the holy text interprets or what the holy text are interpreted as, is it justifiable to attack it since it must still protect its orthodoxy? Okay. Well, I, I think, you know, attacking religion or trying to change religion, reforming religion, should be left to members of a religion, so to religious people essentially, right? You know, when, for example, you see your pastor supporting human rights abuses, and obviously your Bible doesn't tell you that you should support such abuses, you should call them out, right? Because there are many instances where people take um, the power that they have over um, um, a congregation or over um, a mass of people, they take that power to an extreme to the point where they essentially start manufacturing, you know, their own rules, right? So I think religious people should be the very first. You don't wait for people outside your religion, right? Ideally, religious people should be the first to challenge problematic practices by leadership of their own religion. You know, because when the, the challenge comes from, you know, without, externally, um, it, it, it becomes, you know, a matter of, you know, people simply reflexively defending um, their religion because or defending the person who is being challenged. For the longest time, um, you know, abuses of children um, by pedophilic priests was going on in the Catholic Church. And many documents have come out to show that upper, the upper echelons of the church were aware of those abuses. In many instances, they simply moved the abusive priests to another place, right? And that is problematic. You need people who are whistleblowers within um, you know, religion calling out problematic practices, right? The, the, the Bible does not say blessed are you know, the people who abuse kids, Right, so those things should definitely uh, be challenged. Okay, so um, it's been a very engaging session. Um, I, I thank members of the community for the the questions, um, all very um, solid as they have been. Right, um, I'd like to thank all who have been listening, and um, you know, wish you all a good week. I thank you.